We are going to be in the book of First Peter, chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, would love it if you could go ahead and move in that direction so that we'll be ready. So you guys probably saw the headline that I saw a few months ago. It was front page news on all the news stations. Christianity is declining in America. And so we see this, and the church looks at this news story as it came out, and we're trying to figure out, how do we respond to that? What do we do as people who have been called by God to see that the gospel is carried forth in our country, and all of a sudden we're seeing that whatever we're doing isn't working because we have less and less Christians. Something that you've probably noticed as well in personal conversations that you've had with your neighbors and your friends and people that you work with. That our culture is changing. Whereas you used to be able to look at America and say, hey, this is a Christian nation. It gets harder and harder and harder for us to look at our country and say that that is the case. And it's not a problem that can be fixed with politics. It's not a problem that can be fixed with legislation. It's a problem that can only be fixed by the gospel of Jesus. And we as people who have the gospel of Jesus are given the task and the responsibility to see that it's shared and that it's made known. I want to give you a few more statistics just to kind of help us color this. One is, is that today in America, there are over 100 million adults who have no affiliation with the church whatsoever. Over 100 million adults in our country that have no affiliation with the church, they have no intention of ever going, nothing's going to get them inside of the doors of a church. Number two, the number of adults who are not attending church has doubled since 1991. The number of adults not attending church in America has doubled since 1991. We're talking about 24 years And that's a staggering statistic. Number three, over 3,500 churches each year in our country close their doors, um, never to reopen again. And we're not starting enough new churches to keep up with the rate of decline. We look a lot to our brothers and sisters uh, who are overseas in the UK um, because our culture is moving in a direction that their culture has already moved in. And so we can learn a lot from them. In the year 1900 in the UK, over 55% of the UK was in church in Sunday school on Sunday mornings. Today, excuse me, today in 2015, that number is 1%. 1%. 1 1% of people who could possibly return to church. Yet, our churches are geared towards bringing in church people. We look at churches and we think that things are going really well, right? We have huge, huge like mega churches in almost every city and town in America now where thousands of people gather to hear the name of Jesus. So we're like, something must be going right. Those churches have lights, they've got great bands, and all of this stuff is going. And we look at the church and we say, something must be going right. But it's not working because we have less people in church by half than we had 24 years ago. Steve Timms, who is a pastor in the UK, said this. 
He said, Sunday morning in church is the one place where evangelism cannot take place in our generation because the lost are not there. Mission, therefore, must be done primarily in the context of everyday life. And hear me, as one of your pastors who has the privilege to stand and to just watch what God is doing in this church, we want this to be a great experience. We want people to want to come here. But we have to know and understand that this is not the ultimate answer. It's not the ultimate solution. We can't just come here on Sunday mornings and expect people to show up. We've got to get outside of the doors of where we are. Church is not the destination. It's the launch pad. It's where we gather together to be sent out. We've talked a lot over the last few weeks about circles. And so a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the biggest circle of them all, planet Earth, right? This is our big circle where ultimately we, as the kingdom of God, as the church of the world, are responsible to see that every man, woman, and child on this planet has opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus. Last week, we spent some time talking about our responsibility as a church, and we talked about how there's a 10-mile circle around our church, and in that, we believe that God has called us and given us the responsibility to see that every man, woman, and child inside of that circle has multiple opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus. We do that through missional communities. We do that through church events. We do that through huddles. We do that in a lot of different ways. But this morning, I want us to talk about a third circle. And it's a circle that's probably the most important circle for us as God's people who are sitting in this room this morning. And that is your personal circle. Just imagine, if you will, that this is your personal circle. And so if this is my personal circle, and I've got my circle here with me at church this morning because... Hey, I'm at church. I talk about Jesus at church. I have the responsibility to see that everyone who comes close to or inside of this circle has an opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus. That's an easy thing for me this morning, like I'm standing up here giving you an opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus, right? Have I done my due diligence? So when I'm done, I walk off the stage and my circle stays there? No, right? No, it doesn't. It's something that goes with me everywhere that I go. And so as I leave and I'm walking, I'm not going to hula hoop, don't worry. (laughs) As I leave and I walk out off of stage and I go home this afternoon and I'm out working in my yard and my neighbor comes up to me to have a conversation and he gets right here and we start talking, guess what? He's inside of my personal circle. As I have the opportunity to go to work and interact with people there, those are people who are inside of my circle. As I'm hanging out with my wife tonight, she's inside of my circle. We all have a personal circle that God has called us to see that everyone who we have the privilege of coming in contact with on a day-to-day basis has multiple opportunities to see here and respond to the gospel of Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what is my circle? What is my responsibility? Your circle is your circle alone. No one else owns that. No one else has responsibility for that. You 
alone are the person that God has called to be an influence for the gospel in the life of all of those people that you're going to come in contact with. You own it. It's not your missional community's job. It's not your huddle's job. It's not your church's job. Certainly, we want all of those to be ways for us to be sent out, a launch pad out onto mission. But we each have family. We each have friends. We each have neighbors. We have coworkers that God has called us to. We've got to be faithful to it. Here's what I want you guys to do. If you've got a bulletin, a kid's bulletin, whatever it is, I want you to pull that out, grab a pen, and I want us to think inside of those categories. So think about family. <clears throat> Who is someone in your family that needs to hear the gospel, that needs to come to Jesus? Write that name down. Think about friends. Who is a friend that you have that you know needs to hear the gospel? They need to experience the hope of the gospel. Write that name down. What about a neighbor? Who is a neighbor that you have in your life? Someone who lives close to you that you have a relationship with because of that. And they need to know Jesus. Write that name down. What about someone that you work with, a coworker? Someone that you interact with on a daily basis that needs to know Jesus. Write that name down. We each probably have at least a good 40 people that we interact with regularly. They're in our family, they're close friends, they're people who live around us, they're people that we work with. And these are people who most days, we're going to have some kind of interaction with them. That's where we start. It's where we're called to start. So in the book of 1 Peter, the church is kind of in an interesting period in history. And what's happened is because of persecution, Christians are spread all throughout the land. There's not like a main gathering point for them. There's not a place where hundreds or thousands of them are going to come together on a Sunday morning and worship together. Instead, they're sent out by families, fleeing people who want to put them to death because they believe and they follow Jesus. And so they're each out living in their own personal circles of life, doing their best to see that the gospel is being spread and that people are able to hear about the love of Jesus. It's not exactly our culture today. We've been blessed by God to live in a country that's given us freedom to worship, freedom to gather, and we celebrate that. But as we begin to see culture continuing to trend in a bad direction, we've got to know how to respond to that. We've got to know how to live in that, and we've got to know how to speak the gospel in that. So that's what I want us to look at this morning. Let's look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to start reading in verse 13. <clears throat> it says, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make an offense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So from what we see here in 1 Peter chapter 3, what I want to do is give us a few ways that are helpful for us in learning what it means for us to go inside of our personal circles. 
The first thing I think we see in verse 13, and that is that we need to do good. He says, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? He's asking this question, who's going to harm you? If you're constantly doing good for other people, then it's likely that they're not going to lash out against you and come out against you. If you're constantly expressing love to people and trying to do things to help them, then people probably aren't going to start throwing things at you. They're not going to be your neighbor and and mad at you and throwing stuff through your window and breaking it, unless it's a kid or whatever. Like, they're going to be realizing that you want what's best for them and that you love them, and so they're not going to generally harm you. What's important to understand about this idea of doing good, though, is that we need to know that this isn't just an idea where, hey, doing good means that I'm doing good for myself. Because I think a lot of us have that tendency sometimes to think when we see, well, doing good, obviously God wants me to care about me and do good for me. But if we're constantly focused on ourselves, whether it be self-help or or whatever, um, people are going to look at us and not really appreciate that. Like, if we're looking at myself and saying, you know, I want to make a better me, what can I do to make my life great? What can I do to make things for me really good, you have to ask yourself the question, can I really even make myself good? And ultimately the answer is no. You can't do anything to make yourself good. Jesus is the one who makes you good. And Jesus has not called us to be focused on ourselves. Jesus has called us to be focused on others. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that personal circle of seeing that my neighbor is cared for and loved is at least as important as loving myself. And I would venture to say probably even more. Because what we see happens is when we begin to express good to others, we're focused externally and not focused on ourselves. God blesses that and gives us good. We grow. We become more like Jesus. And that's what we want to experience Jesus was not focused on himself. He was focused on obedience to the Father and focused on the lost world. We see more of this in verse 16. It says, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. There's this idea here of a conscience, a good conscience, a clear conscience. What does that mean for us? Basically, it means that we believe in the work of the gospel in our lives. That God has redeemed us, he's rescued us from our brokenness and our sinfulness, and he's made us new and beautiful. And we latch on to that and believe that. We don't walk around defeated. We don't walk around like the world is out to get us. But we walk around knowing that we've been forgiven. But guys, a lot of us believe and hold on to this fact that for some reason, we get up in the morning and we wear this guilt on our shoulders as we go to work, we feel it. I'm not good enough. There's nothing about me that, 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 that can be good enough. I don't know what to do. I've got all these problems going on in my life, these things that keep us awake and keep us up at night. But to live like that means that we're living like we don't believe the gospel. You can't be good enough, but God makes you good enough. You trust in that, you believe in that, and you live like a person who's been forgiven. The gospel clears us of our guilt and it puts us on a new path. Jesus died for that stuff. You don't have to let it keep yourself up at night. Let him handle it. Let him take care of it. 
And when that happens, we see that we're expressing good, we're living with a conscience like we've been forgiven. Others might come against us, but we're not going to be the ones that are put to shame. He said they are the ones who are going to be put to shame when we're expressing love and goodness and people come against us. There's a lady named Norma McCorvey. <clears throat> she was a 23-year-old um, single mom, was on her third pregnancy, living on the streets, addicted to drugs, addicted to alcohol. And as a part of this third pregnancy, realizing everything that she'd been through, and sad to say that she was um, seeking a way to be able to have an abortion. And a group of lawyers uh, saw her and saw her need and saw her situation and said, you know what, that's something that we can use. And so they went to Norma and they said, Norma, we want you to be the face of a lawsuit in America that's going to bring this issue in the forefront of our minds. And so they used her and, 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 and Norma eventually became Jane Roe, who was the face of Roe versus Wade. Decision that allowed... Um, Basically, women in our country to be able to say, you know, my right to privacy means that I have the right to have an abortion. And so Norma uh, lived life through this case for a long time. She wasn't able to do it herself, have an abortion herself, just because of how long this case took. And so she actually had her kid. Um, but she felt, began to feel this immense feeling of guilt in her life and just wearing the guilt of what um, she had done. Uh, and so she tried to uh, get rid of that guilt by just pressing harder into uh, what she had said. And so she actually wrote, wrote a book uh, that was pro-choice. She began to work at an abortion clinic. All the while, this guilt was eating her up on the inside, and it drove her deeper and deeper into alcoholism. And in 1995, next to the abortion clinic that, sh that she worked at, a Christian pro-life organization moved in next door. Here's what Norma said about these people. She said, I acted hatefully towards those people. But those people acted lovingly to me most of the time. One man did angrily accuse me at one point of being responsible for killing 40 million babies. But he later came to me and apologized for his words and said they were not motivated by love. And so Norman began to have conversations with these people who were next door. She would go outside on a smoke break, and they would come out and have a conversation with her. They would pray for her. And later that year in 1995, Norma McCorvey gave her life to Jesus. She's dedicated her life to overturning the decision that she was the face of in Roe versus Wade. All because a few Christians decided, you know what? She needs to experience the goodness of God, not us yelling at her. We've been called to do good deeds in our personal lives, the people that we have the opportunity to interact with. Church isn't going to do it. Attractional events that we have here on Sunday morning, on Friday night, out in a field isn't going to be enough. But the ordinary lives of ordinary Christians living out the gospel become attractional events for people. And as people look and see people who are living with hope, they can't help but want to have that very same hope themselves. Madeline L. Engel, a writer, said this one time. She said, we do not draw people to Christ by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are. 
but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. 1 Peter 2.12, Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As we express good to people, we hope and we pray that leads to them glorifying our Lord. Whether it's bringing coffee and having a conversation with someone, taking a meal for a family who's going through something difficult, cutting their grass, having a cookout in your neighborhood and inviting all your neighbors to be a part of it, or hosting a Christmas party. There are a thousand ways that we can express goodness. And God has expressed so much goodness to us that we should have plenty to express to others as well. So we need to do good to go with the gospel personally. Number two, we also need to speak good news. He talks about this in verse 15. It says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. First, we have to have a hope. And that hope is that in our hearts, we honor Christ as Lord. And that hope is so key because, yes, we've got to be ready to give an answer. But if we live as people who are without hope, we're never going to have an opportunity to even do it. And so we've got to be people whose lives are marked by hope. But sadly, so often we live like we don't have any hope because we live in a culture that's not hopeful. We live in a culture that's depressed and that's constantly looking down on life and on themselves, and they can't find an escape. They can't find anyone who loves them. They can't find anyone who cares about them. They need to experience hope. But if we're like them, and we walk around complaining about our life and on social media complaining about our day and our jobs and our kids, no one's going to come to us and ask us why we have hope. We've got to live like we have hope in order to be set apart. Some people call like complaining and constantly being down about stuff being real and authentic. I think that's trying to put a good word on something that's really bad. Guys, we listen, I know life is hard. We go through difficulty. We go through hard stuff. But we don't go through hard stuff as people who don't have hope. What sets us apart from everyone else who is out in the world right now, struggling, not knowing how they're going to make it through the next week, is that we know exactly how we're going to make it through the next week. And we've got to start living as people who know that, who hope in that, and who express that hope to others. Not complaining, but hoping in the fact that we have a great Savior. Philippians 2, uh, verses 14 through 15, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do you want to shine as a light in a dark world? Live life without complaining. Live life as if you have hope. We've got to be ready to give a defense, but he says that we need to do it with gentleness and respect. Not belittling people, not tearing people down. 
Is there hard stuff to share? Yeah. When you share the gospel with someone, people have to admit, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, there's nothing that I can do to save myself. That's tough, but it's not the end of the story. It's not the climax of the story. The climax of the story is, yes, you're broken, yes, there's nothing you can do to save yourself, but guess what? There is someone who wants to save you. There is someone who wants to redeem you. There is someone who wants to find you in your brokenness and rescue you and take you out of it. So yes, you are broken, but yes, someone wants to take you and make you whole. What makes the gospel great is not that we're great sinners, but that we have a great Savior. My wife, uh, Emily, she's working in kids, but one of her favorite Instagram accounts is this Instagram account that's called Live from Snack Time. And so it's a teacher of little kids who basically takes quotes that her kids say in class, and she like makes these graphics for them and puts them on Instagram. And I always think these are really funny. I'm going to throw some of these up on the screen for you so that you can see them. Um, baby squirrels come from unicorns. Unicorns, acorns, I'm sorry. <laughs> unicorns would be even better, right? Baby squirrels come from acorns. What else? Why are wishes made out of pennies? Right? Kids are observing the world and trying to put their thoughts together. Why are wishes made out of pennies? What's next? Six more legs and I'll be a spider. That's my favorite one. Six more legs and I'll be a spider. I love it. Why do people call tattoos trampoline stamps? <laughs> That's good. One more, one more. I don't eat at McDonald's because the hamburgers are made out of people. Listen, kids don't always get things right, you know, like they observe the world and they kind of have a skewed view of reality, and so they come to you and they say things like this, and what do we do as parents? We say, well, let me tell you how it really is. Here's the truth. Here's what you need to understand. Here's what's going on. You guys know this probably better than I do if you have kids, and you probably hear things like this all the time, and it's your job as a parent to speak truth into the life of your kids so that they can understand the world and the reality of what is going on in the world. And it's not much different for us as Christians who have been called to see that people are able to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus. Because sometimes people are going to look at this whole church thing, they're going to look at this whole Christian thing, and they're not going to get the right idea. They're not going to understand what's going on. They're not going to have a clear understanding of the gospel. And God has called us then as people who have that responsibility to be able to speak truth and speak good news into their hearts and their lives so that they can know that it is only the name of Jesus that can save them and that can rescue them from where they are. This world is full of a thousand wrong views. We've been called to speak the right one. So I've got a a few things, just a few tips for us here. One is, why why must we speak good news? Why is it important for us to speak good news? Number one, news must be declared. News has to be told by the very nature of it. It's something that's delivered. It's something that's declared. It's something that's spoken. Otherwise, it's not news. You can love somebody all day and express goodness to somebody all day. But unless they know that it's the name of Jesus that makes that possible and it's the name of Jesus that's going to rescue them from their brokenness, all it is is somebody doing somebody 
a favor. St. Francis of Assisi, there's a quote that's like, people originate to him, and you've probably heard this before, and it's basically preach the gospel and when necessary use words. Number one, St. Francis of Assisi never said that. And number two, it's absolutely wrong. You have to use words to preach the gospel. No one's going to be able to look at your life and get all that they need to get. See you doing something good for somebody and saying, yeah, I get it. Jesus died for them. Uh, he, he took a broken person and made them new as he died on the cross and their sin was put to death. But yet he was resurrected and, and in that new life, they gained new life as well. That doesn't happen from us just doing nice stuff for people. We have to tell people good news. It has to be declared. And number two, why we must speak good news. We've got to tell a better story. Our world is full of stories and it's full of bad stories. Your neighbors have bad stories about their lives and struggles that they're going through constantly and they need something that's better. They need something that's going to give them hope, something that's going to rescue them from their brokenness. And we get the chance to tell a better story because Jesus is a better story than any story that's ever been told before. And if the gospel is really good news, then it's worth telling. It's worth shouting from the rooftops. And we've got to frame it that way. We have to tell the hope of Jesus like it's a good thing. And a lot of times we're so scared and we're so nervous that we apologize for it and we act like this and we're talking to people about Jesus. And when we do that, what happens is they don't see it as good news. They don't want it. We have got to say, this is a better story. This is what you need. So I've got a few tips for you. Uh, Hopefully these will be helpful as we begin to speak good news into the lives of people. One, ask the question of, of the relationship that you have with those names that you wrote down. Ask this question. What does good news look like for them? What does good news look like for my neighbor who's going through a divorce and struggling right now? What does good news look like for the person that I work with who got their kids taken away from them? How do we speak good news to a person like this? We have to get to know people. We have to get to know what's going on in their lives so that we can declare the gospel as good news. And it doesn't mean that we come at people and we say things like this. Well, you know what? You shouldn't be getting drunk anymore. If we're framing it as good news and we come at someone and we say, you don't need to get drunk anymore because Jesus is better. We don't go to someone and say, you shouldn't lose your temper like that anymore. But instead we say, you don't have to lose your temper because Jesus offers you hope, refuge, peace, patience. How do we frame the gospel as good news in the lives of people? Number two, we need to be consistent. Spread it out over multiple conversations. This isn't a one and done thing. We're in relationship with these people. Because we're in relationship with them, it means that we're going to see them most days. We're going to have conversations with them most days. So let the Spirit speak into their hearts Don't give them the whole thing at once and leave them overwhelmed, but instead be consistent. Make it a part of your relationship to be able to speak the gospel into their lives. Number three, personalize it. If you can make your story a part of the gospel story, do it. 
Talk about how the gospel's changed you. And when you were at a point of brokenness, you realized the hope that is only found in Jesus. And lastly, don't bear the weight of it. God does the work, not us. And a lot of times we feel the weight of what's happening and say, I I can't, it's too much. But God just called us to be faithful to speak, and he is the one who does the work. So we've got to do good. We've got to speak good news. Lastly, we need to learn to suffer well. Earlier we talked about how in 1 Peter, this is severe persecution that these Christians are going through. Their friends, their families are oftentimes being put to death. And so we look at that and we see clearly what suffering was for them. And in our context of America today, it's very different. Most of us don't suffer for our faith. Someone may make a snide remark to us. Someone may not want to have anything to do with us anymore. We're not facing intense persecution. But it doesn't mean that we're not suffering at times. It doesn't mean that we're not going through hard times. It doesn't mean that that we don't sometimes uh, have people who come against us because we believe in the gospel of Jesus. And so I think these principles that Peter's talking about here still stand well with us, even in our situation. So let's look to this. Let's look in verse 14. Peter says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Earlier we talked about how good usually leads to people not harming us, but that's not always the case. Sometimes we might still go through difficulty. We might still suffer. And so I think what Peter says here is important. We've got a few points on suffering. And one is that we need to view suffering as a gift. Notice what he says in verse 14. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And there are other passages in Scripture that speak to this idea. If you look in Philippians 1.29, it says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you. It's a gift to you that you have the opportunity to suffer for the name of Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 19-20, earlier in the book, he says this, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Suffering is a gift. It's a grace to us. But we don't think about that. When we're in the middle of suffering, we're in the middle of hard times, how often do we stop and say, this is a gift from the Lord? But you know why it's a gift? Because we have hope. Because people can look at our lives and see as we suffer that there's something that's different about us and the way that we live. We don't have to be afraid. We look to the future and see that we serve a God, we serve a Savior, and we serve a kingdom who's so much greater than any other kingdom or any other problem that this world has ever experienced. We look at that and we have hope and we persevere. Verse 17, he says, For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Second point on suffering. We need to suffer the right way. We live in a fallen world. We live with sin around us. And as a result of that, we will suffer. It's going to happen. 
And what Peter's saying is, he's saying, listen, if you have to suffer, if suffering is going to happen, suffer for something good instead of something that's evil. If you have to go through hard times, don't bring those hard times upon yourself because you make bad choices. Suffer for something that is good, that's worthwhile, and that's valuable. There's a big difference, like he said in 1 Peter 2, between suffering for your sin and suffering when you do good. And we've got to draw that line. This idea of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, like only works if we get stronger. It only works if we better ourselves. It only works if we take good steps in our lives. And we've got to stop putting ourselves in bad situations because we make bad choices and suffering through that and instead focus our lives on doing good, doing the right thing. And yes, we're going to suffer. Yes, we're going to go through hard times. But God will receive glory and people will notice as we do that. I read a story this week about a guy named Dmitri. And Dmitri lived in Russia in the time of the USSR under, under communism. And in that day, Dmitri was a believer. In that day, there was one church, one state church of Russia, of USSR, and that was the Russian Orthodox Church. I have had the opportunity to, to be in Russia before and gotten a glimpse of the Russian Orthodox Church. And the, the Orthodox Church over there is, is full of mysticism, doesn't really speak the gospel at all. It'd be hard for us to even consider it to be a, a real church. Um, but any other church at that time outside of the Russian Orthodox Church was basically viewed as a cult. And so as Christians, as evangelical Christians were trying to, to get over there and plant churches... Um, being an expression of the gospel, they were constantly being arrested and thrown into prison because, one, they were viewed as a cult, and two, they're actually viewed as like spies from America. And so the Russian government didn't want evangelicals at all. They said, we've got the Russian Orthodox Church, you go there to worship God. And so the presence of the gospel was just, um, just really quelched during that time period. And so Dimitri's living in this. And he is a follower of Jesus and wants his family to follow Jesus as well. And so what he starts to do is he starts with his family. He starts a Bible study in his home for his family and starts preaching the good news of Jesus to his kids and his wife. And over time, what happened is the neighbors started to drop in. So he invited them in and invited them into this. Neighbors came by, other people from the community, till it got to the point that Dimitri in his small little house one day looked around and noticed in the middle of the Bible study that there were 75 people meeting in his house, crammed with no room to move around because he's preaching the good news of Jesus. Well, the government officials found out about this, and they busted in on a Bible study, and they dragged Dimitri out and threw him in prison hundreds of miles away from his family so that he could have no uh, contact with them whatsoever. Dimitri in prison continued to do two things that he had always done. One is that he woke up every morning in this tiny cell that only had a little bit of space for him to either walk to his toilet or walk to the bars where constantly people were throwing stuff at him. He woke up every morning and he stood on his bed and he sang a song of praise to the Lord. And his neighbors around him laughed at him, they cussed at him, and told him that he was being ridiculous. But it didn't matter. Every morning he woke up and he sang a song of praise to God. Also, anytime he was able to get even a little bitty piece of paper, 
He would write on that paper as much as he could, all the scripture that he could possibly remember, and he would hang it up in his cell. The guards would come by, and they would see that scripture, and they would pull it down, and they would drag him out, and they would beat him, and then throw him back in. But at every opportunity, he still did it because he didn't want to forget the good news. One day the guards came to him and told him, hey man, we went to your family's house. We killed your wife and took your kids into custody. Are you ready to give up? Demetrius is broken by this. and he, he said to the Lord, he was like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. They've taken everything from me. And so he promised that the next day he would sign a confession that they put together saying that they would release him if only he would sign away saying that he didn't believe in the name of Jesus anymore. That night, Demetri was laying in his cell crying. And his family, who was not murdered, and was still together hundreds of miles away, realized through the Holy Spirit that he needed to be prayed for. So they gathered together in their house with people from their neighborhood, and they began to pray for him. And through the Holy Spirit that night, Dimitri heard the prayers of his people. He realized that his wife wasn't dead and that his kids were still there because he heard the words coming out of their mouth as they prayed for him. So the next morning when the guards came with a confession, Dimitri Resolute said, I will not sign it. And he confronted them for lying to him. This infuriated the guards. They dragged him out, dragging him down through the aisles of the prison. And an incredible thing started to happen. 1,500 other prisoners in this prison all stood up on their beds and started singing that song of praise that Dimitri sang every morning. Guards were taken aback. They stepped back away from him, not sure what kind of power he had in his life. And he began to tell them about Jesus. A few days later, he was released and was able to go back home and be with his family. Guys, what are we declaring in our suffering? Do we declare how great our problems are? Or are we declaring how great our God is? First Peter 2, verse 21 through 24 says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin. And live to righteousness. Point number three about suffering is that we've got to suffer for a purpose. Jesus is our example for this. That Jesus suffered for us and we have been called to suffer for him. And I really believe that our best evangelism, the best that we can give and say and declare of the hope of the gospel happens when we go through hard times. That as people look in on our lives and say that, Yes, your life is broken. Yes, there's nothing you can do about it right now, but that's still a person who has hope. 
We can't fake it when we go through hard times. It's real. And if we really believe the gospel, then at those moments where life is at its hardest and we are living with hope, people are going to want that and people are going to want to desire it as well. Jesus suffered so that the world can know the love of the Father. Guys, we're called to do the same thing. We suffer and we go through difficulty for the name of Jesus. Some of you may be here this morning and you are hearing of this hope. You're hearing this great message of the gospel that God loved you so much that he bore his, your sins on his body on the tree, that your sin could be put to death and that you could have new life. If you hear that and you want to know that hope and want to experience the goodness of God, the band's going to be playing in a minute. I'll be back there. We'd love the opportunity to chat, to pray with you about the hope that's only found in Jesus. Guys, for those of us who are Christians, who are believers, who have experienced the hope that Jesus has to offer, we've got a little something that we call our engaged process. And earlier you wrote down names of people who are a part of your life. And our engage process is something that we have a church, as a church have come up with to help make this easier for you. That sometimes we give answers best when we have uh, places in our lives where we can interact with people and begin to speak the gospel. And so the engage process is set up to do that. I'm going to walk you through this really quick. A lot of you have these in your, in your seats. If you need some more, we've got some more as well. Um, but the first step of this is just to identify someone. We've already done that. You've already written down names of people in your life that need to know the gospel of Jesus. Second step is to invest in that person. Get to know them. Spend time with them. The more that you get to know them, the better that you can speak the hope of Jesus into their lives. When you've invested in them and you're investing in that relationship, then you've earned the right to invite. Earn the right to invite them into some kind of atmosphere where you can speak the gospel. And it could be a huddle. It could be a missional community. It could be Sunday morning here at church. Whatever it is, invite them in to the gospel of Jesus. And lastly, follow up with intention. Have a conversation with them afterwards saying, hey, how was that? What was that like for you? Let's talk about when we were talking about the name of Jesus and the hope that's found in him. How did that resonate with you? What's going on? And the great thing about this process is it's a circle. It keeps going so that once you follow it up with intention, you continue to invest in their lives and then you invite them in even deeper. Maybe you invited them into a missional community before and your next step is to invite them into a huddle. And then you continue to follow up and we continue to work through allowing people to know the gospel of Jesus. Church, it's time that we take this circle seriously. It's yours. God has given it to you so that you can express the goodness and the hope that's found in him. Let's be faithful to do what he's called us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for hope that is found in you and nowhere else. And God, I pray as we have the opportunity to declare the goodness and the faithfulness of who you are, Lord, that we would take seriously the circle that you've given us, that we would take seriously the opportunity that we have to express the goodness of you, Lord, to those that you've called us into relationship with. God, may we be faithful. Lord, I pray that the name of Jesus would be on the tips of our tongues. 
coming out of our hearts, allowing people to know hope that's found in you. Jesus, we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Joel. Uh, we are uh, we're going to dismiss you guys now. We, we have a wonderful thing. A lot of you guys registered for something called uh, Voyage, which is, uh, which is something for uh, parents of kids. Uh, so if you registered for Voyage, uh, if you would go ahead and go grab your kids, we're going we're gonna to move them into the uh, two classrooms right here. If you have an uh, elementary school kid, hang on, hang on, don't go anywhere, hang on. Okay, uh, if you have an elementary school kid, we're going to be right outside this door in the art room. And then if you have a, if you have a uh, preschool, uh, then right there in the music room, okay? So go ahead and go get your kids if you're in Voyage. Otherwise, we will see you next week. It's going to be an exciting, uh, exciting week next Sunday. See you guys later.